This audio is presented by Hacker Noon, where anyone can learn anything about any technology. The Summer Season, by Fyodor Dostoevsky, The House of the Dead, or Prison Life in Siberia by Fyodor Dostoevsky is part of the Hacker Noon book series. You can jump to any chapter in this book here. The Summer S-C-A-S-O-N-V. The Summer Season. April is come. Holy Week is not far off. We set about our summer tasks. The sun becomes hotter and more brilliant every day. The atmosphere has the spring in it, and acts upon our nervous system powerfully. The convict, in his chains, feels the trembling influence of the lovely days like any other creature. There is desires in him, inexpressible longings for his home, and many other things. I think that he misses his liberty, yearns for freedom more when the day is filled with sunlight than during the rainy and melancholy days of autumn and winter. You may observe this positively among convicts, if they do feel a little joy on a beautiful clear day, they have a reaction into greater impatience and irritability. I noticed that in spring there was much more squabbling in our prison. There was more noise, the yelling was greater, there were more fights. During the working hours we would see a man sometimes fixed in a meditative gaze, which seemed lost in the blue distance somewhere, the other side of the Irtich, where stretched the boundless plain, with its flight of hundreds of versts, the free Kyrgyz steppe. Long-drawn sighs came to one's ear, sighs breathed from the depths of the chest. It might seem that the air of those wide and free regions, haunted by their thought, forced the PG-265 convicts to draw deep respirations, and was a sort of solace to their crushed and fettered souls. Ah! cries at last the poor prisoner all at once, with a long, sighing cry. Then he seizes his pick furiously, or picks up the bricks, which he has to carry from one place to another. But after a brief minute he seems to forget the passing impression, and begins laughing, or insulting people near, so fitful Ishi's humor. Then he attacks the work he has to do with unusual fire, labors with might and main, as if trying to stifle by fatigue the grief that has him by the throat. You see they are fellows of unimpaired vigor, all in the very flower of life, with all their physical and other strength about them. How heavy the irons are during this season. All this is not sentimentality, it is the report of rigorous observation. During the hot season, under a fiery sun, when all one's being, all one's soul, is vividly conscious of, and intimately feels, the unspeakably strong resurrection of nature going on everywhere, it is more difficult to support the confinement, the perpetual surveillance, the tyranny of a will other than one's own. Besides this, it is in spring with the first song of the lark that throughout all Siberia and Russia men set out on the tramp, God's creatures, if they can, break their prison and escape into the woods. After the stifling ditch where they work, after the boats, the irons, the rods and whips, they go vagabondizing where they please, wherever they can make it out best, they eat and drink what they can get, tis all the time pot luck with them, and by night they sleep undisturbed in the woods or in a field, without a care, without the agony of knowing themselves in prison, as if they were God's own birds, their good night is said to the stars, and the eye that watches them is the eye of God. Not altogether a rosy life, by any means, Sometimes hunger and fatigue are heavy on them, in the service of General Cuckoo. Often enough the wanderer shave not a morsel of bread to keep their teeth, PG-266. Going for days and days. They have to hide from everybody, run to earth like marmots. Sometimes they are driven to robbery, pillage, nay, even murder. Send a man there and he becomes a child, and just throws himself on all heezies, that is what people say of those transported to Siberia. This saying may be applied even more fitly to the tramps. They are almost all brigands and thieves, by necessity rather than inclination. Many of them are hardened to the life, irreclaimable. There are convicts who go off after having served their time, even after they have been put on some land as their own. They ought to be happy in their new state, with their daily bread assured them. 
Well, it is not so. An irresistible impulse sends them wandering off. This life in the woods, wretched and fearful as it is, but still free and adventurous, has a mysterious seduction for those who have experienced it. Among these fugitives you may find to your surprise, people of good habit of mind, peaceable temper, who had shown every promise of becoming settled creatures, good tillers of the land. A convict will marry, have children, live for five years in the same place, then all of a sudden he will disappear one fine morning, abandoning wife and children, to the stupefaction of his family and the whole neighborhood. One day, I was shown at the convict establishment one of these deserters of the family hearthstone. He had committed no crime, at least, he was under suspicion of none, but all through his life he had been a deserter, a deserter from every post. He had been to the southern frontier of the empire, the other side of the Danube, in the Kyrgyz steppe, in eastern Siberia, the Caucasus, in a word, everywhere. Who knows? Under other conditions this man might have been a Robinson Crusoe, with the passion of travel so on him. These details I have from other convicts, for he did not like talk, and never opened his mouth except when absolutely necessary. He was a peasant, of quite small size, of some fifty years, very quiet in demeanor, with a face so still as to seem quite, PG-267. Without any sort of meaning, impassive almost to idiotcy. His delight was to sit for hours in the sun humming a sort of song between his teeth so softly, that five steps off he was inaudible. His features were, so to speak, petrified. He ate little, principally black bread. He never bought white bread or spirits. My belief is, he never had had any money, and that he couldn't have counted it if he had. He was indifferent to everything. Sometimes he fed the prison dogs with his own hand, a thing no one else was known to do. Speaking generally, Russians don't like giving dogs things to eat from the hand. People said Fathe had been married, twice even, and that he had children somewhere. Why he had been sent as a convict, I have not the least idea. We fellows were always fancying that he would escape, but his hour did not come, or perhaps had come and gone. Anyhow, he went through with his punishment without resistance. He seemed an element quite foreign to the medium wherein he had his being, an alien, self-concentrated creature. Still, there was nothing in this deep surface calm which could be trusted. Yet, after all, what good would it have been to him to escape from the place? Compared with life at the convict prison, the vagabond age of the forests is asked joys of paradise. The tramp's lot is wretched enough, but at least free. Swa is that every prisoner all over the soil of Russia, becomes restless with the first rays of the smiling spring. Comparatively few form any settled plan for flight, they fear the hindrances in the way and the punishment that may ensue. Only one in a hundred, not more, make up his mind to it, but how to do it is a thought that never ceases to haunt the minds of the ninety-nine others. Filled as they are with this longing, anything that looks like giving a chance of success is a comfort to them. Then they set about comparing the facts with cases of successful escape. I speak only of prisoners after and under sentence, for prisoners not yet tried and condemned, are much more ready to try it and escape. And those who have been sentenced, rarely get, PG-268, away unless they attempt it in early days. When they have spent two or three years of their time, they put them to a sort of credit account in their minds, and conclude that it is better to finish with the law and be put on land as a free man, rather than forfeit that time if they fail in escaping, which is always a possibility. Certainly not more than one convict in ten succeeds in changing his lot. Those who do, are nearly always men sentenced to an extremely long punishment, or for life. Fifteen, twenty years seem like an eternity to them. Then there is the branding, which is a great difficulty in the way of complete escape. Changing your lot is a technical expression. When a convict is caught trying to escape, he is subjected to formal interrogatory, and will say he wanted to change his lot. This somewhat literary formula exactly represents the act in question. 
No escaped prisoner ever hopes to become a perfectly free man, for he knows that it is nearly impossible. What he looks for is to be sent to some other convict establishment, or to be put on the land, or to be tried again for some offense committed when on the tramp. In a word, to be sent anywhere else, it matters not where, so that he get out of his present prison which has become insufferable to him. All these fugitives, unless they find some unexpected shelter for the winter, unless they meet someone interested in concealing them, or if, last resort, they cannot procure, and sometimes a murder does it, the legal document, which enables them to go about unmolested everywhere. All these fugitives present themselves in crowds, during the autumn, in the towns and at the prisons. They confess themselves to be escaped tramps, pass the winter in jail, and live in the secret hope of getting away the following summer. On me, as well as others, the spring exercised its influence. Well do I remember the avidity with which my gaze fed upon the horizon through the gaps in the palisades. Long, long did I stand with my head glued to the pickets, obstinately and insatiably gazing on the PG-269. Grass greening in the ditch surrounding the fortress, and at the blue of the distant sky as it grew denser and denser. My anguish, my melancholy, were heavier on me, as each day wore away the jail became odious, detestable. Hatred for me, as a man of the nobility, filled the hearts of the convicts during these first years, and this feeling of theirs simply poisoned my life for me. Often did I ask to be sent to the hospital, when there was no need of it, merely to be out of the punishment part of the place, to feel myself out of the range of this unrelenting and implacable hostility. You nobles have beaks of iron, and you tore us to pieces with your beaks when we were serfs, is what the convicts used to say to us. How I envied the people of the lower class who came into the place as prisoners. It was different with them, they were in comradeship with all there from the very first moment. So was sit that in the spring, freedom showing herself as a sort of phantom of the season, the joy diffused throughout all nature, translated themselves within my soul into a more than doubled melancholy and nervous irritability. As the sixth week of Lent came I had to go through my religious exercises, fourth convicts were divided by the sub-superintendent into seven sections, answering to the weeks in Lent, and these had to attend to their devotions according to this roster. Each section was composed of about thirty men. This week was a great solace to me. We went two or three times a day to the church, which was close to the prison. I had not been in church for a long time. The Lenten services, familiar to me from early childhood in my father's house, the solemn prayers, the prostrations, all stirred in me the fibers of the memory of things long, long past, and woke my earliest impressions to fresh life. Well do I remember how happy I was when at morn we went into God's house, treading the ground which had frozen in the night, under the escort of soldiers with loaded guns, the escort remained outside the church. Once within we were massed close to the door so that, PG-270. We could scarcely hear anything except the deep voice of the ministering deacon. Now and again we caught a glimpse of a black chasuble or the bare head of the priest. Then it came into my mind how, when a child, I used to look at the common people who fermed a compact mass at the door, and how they would step back in a servile way before some important epauletted fellow, or some nobleman with a big paunch, some lady splendidly dressed and of high devotion who, in a hurry to get at the front benches, and ready for a row if there was any difficulty as to their being honored with the best of places. As it seemed to me then, it was only there, near the church door, not far from the entry, that prayer was put up with genuine fervor and humility, only there that, when people did prostrate themselves on the floor it was done with real abasement of self and full sense of unworthiness. And now I myself was in that place of the common people, no, not in their place, for we who were there were in chains and degradation. Everybody kept himself at a distance from us. We were feared, and alms were put in our hands as if we were beggars. I remember that all this gave me the strange sensation of a refined and subtle pleasure.
Let it even be so. Such was my thought. The convicts prayed with deep fervor. Every one of them had with him his poor farthing for a little candle, or for their collection for the church expenses. I too, I am a man, each one of them perhaps said, as he made his offering, before God we are aliqual. After the six o'clock mass we went up to communion. When the priest, sephorium in hand, recited the words, Have mercy on me as thou hadst on the thief whom thou didst save, nearly all the convicts prostrated themselves, and their chains clanked. I think they took these words literally as applied to themselves, and not as being in scripture. Holy Week came. The authorities presented each of us with an Easter egg, and a small piece of wheat and bread. The townspeople loaded us with benevolences. PG 271. As at Christmas there was the priest's visitation with the cross, inspecting visit of the heads of departments, larded cabbage, general enlargement of soul, and unlimited lounging. The only difference being, that one could now walk about in the courtyard, and warm oneself in the sun. Everything see med filled with more light, larger than in the winter, but also more fraught with sadness. The long, endless, summer days seemed peculiarly unbearable on church holidays. Workdays were at least shortened to our sense by the fatigue of work. Our summer labors were much more trying than the winter tasks. Our business was principally that of carrying out engineering works. The convicts were set to building, digging, bricklaying, or repairing government buildings, locksmith's work, or carpentering, or painting. Others went into the brick fields, and that was looked upon by us as the hardest of all we had laid on us. The brick fields were situated about four versts from the fortress, through all the summer they sent there, every morning at six o'clock, a gang of fifty convicts. For this gang they used to pick out workmen who had learned no trade in particular. The convicts took with them their bread for the day, the distance was too great for them to come back, eight useless versts, for dinner with the others, so they had a meal when they returned in the evening. Work was assigned to each for the day, but there was so much of it that it was all a man could do, nay, more, to get to the end of it. First, we had to dig and carry the clay, moisten it, and mold it in the ditch, and then make a goodly quantity of bricks, two hundred or so, sometimes fifty more than that. I was only twice sent to the brick field. The convicts sent to this labor came back in the evening dead tired, and every one of them complained of the others, thought they had had the worst of the work put on him. I believe that reproaches of this kind were a pleasure, a consolation to them. Some of them, however, liked the brick field work, because they got away from the PG 272 town, and to the banks of the Irtich into open, agreeable country, with the sky overhead. The surroundings were more agreeable than those frightful government buildings. They were allowed to smoke there in all freedom, and to remain lying down for half an hour or so, which was a great pleasure. As for me, I was sent to one of the shops, or else to pound up alabaster, or to carry bricks, which last job I had for two months together. I had to take my tail of bricks from the banks of the Irtich to a distance of about 140 yards, and to pass the ditch of the fortress before getting to the barrack which they were putting up. This work suited me well enough, although the cord with which I carried my bricks sawed my shoulders. What particularly pleased me was that my strength increased sensibly. At the outset I could not carry more than eight bricks at once each of them weighed about 12 pounds. I got to be able to carry 12, or even 15, which delighted me much. You wanted physical as well as moral strength to be able to bear all the discomforts of that accursed life. There was this, too, I wanted, when I left the place, really to live, not to be half dead. I took pleasure in carrying my bricks, then, it was not merely that this labor strengthened my body, but because it took me always to the banks of the Irtich. I speak often of this spot, It was the only one where we saw God's own world, a pure and bright horizon, the free desert steppes, whose bareness always produced a strange impression on me. 
All the other workyards were in the fortress itself, or in its neighborhood, and the fortress, from the earliest days I was there, was the object of my hatred, and, above all, its appurtenant buildings. The house of the major commandant seemed to me a repulsive, accursed place. I never could pass it without casting upon it a look of detestation, while at the river bank I could forget my miserable self as I sent my gaze over the immense PG-273 desert space, just as a prisoner may when H.E. looks at the world of freedom through the barred casement of his dungeon. Everything in that place was dear and gracious to my eyes, the sun shining in the infinite blue of heaven, the distant song of the Kyrgyz that came from the opposite bank. Sometimes I would fix my sight for a long while upon the poor smoky cabin of some bygouch. I would study the bluish smoke as it curled in the air, the Kyrgyz woman busy with her two sheep. Dot, dot, dot. The things I saw were wild, savage, poverty-stricken, but they were free. I would follow the flight of a bird threading its way in the pure transparent air. Now it skims the water, now disappears in the azure sky, now suddenly comes to view again, a mere point in space. Even the poor wee flower a fading in a cleft of the bank, which would show itself when spring began, fixed my attention and would draw my tears. Dot, dot, dot. The melancholy of this first year of convict life and hard labor was unendurable, too much for my strength. The anguish of it was so great, I could not notice my immediate surroundings at all. I merely shut my eyes and would not see. Among the creatures with spoiled lives with whom I had to live, I did not yet note those who were capable of thinking and feeling, in spite of their external repulsiveness. There came not to my ears, or if there did I knew it not, one word of kindliness in the midst of the rain of poisonous talk that came down all the time. Still one such utterance there was, simple, straightforward, of pure motive, and it came from the heart of a man who had suffered and endured more than myself. But it is useless to enlarge on this. The great fatigue I underwent was a source of satisfaction, it gave me hope of sound sleep. During the summer sleep was torment, more intolerable than the closeness and infection winter brought with it. Some of the nights were certainly very beautiful. The sun, which had not ceased to inundate the courtyard all, PG 274. The day, hid itself at last. The air freshened, and the night, the night of the steppe, became comparatively cold. The convicts, until shut up in their barracks, walked about in groups, especially on the kitchen side, for that was the place where questions of general interest were by preference discussed, and comments were made upon the rumors from without, often absurd indeed, but always keenly exciting to these men cut off from the world. For example, we suddenly learned that our major had been roughly dismissed from his post. Convicts are as credulous as children. They know the news to be false, or most unlikely, and that the fellow who brings it is a past master in the art of lying, Kavasif, for all that they clutch at the nonsensical story, go into high delight over it, are much consoled, and at last quite ashamed to have been duped by a Kavasif. I should like to know who'll show him the door, cries one convict. Don't you fear, he's a fellow who knows how to stick on. But, says another, he has his superiors over him. This one is a warm controversialist, and has seen the world. Wolves don't feed on one another, says a third gloomily, half-toe himself. This one is an old fellow, growing gray, and he always takes his sour cabbage soup into a corner, and eats it there. Do you think his superiors will take your advice whether they shall show him the door or not? Adds a fourth, who doesn't seem to care about it at all, giving a stroke to his balalaika. Well, why not? Replies the second angrily, if you were asked, answer what's in your mind. But no, with us fellows it's all mere cry, and when you ought to goat things with a will, everybody sneaks out. That's so, says the one playing with the balalaika. Hard labor and prison air just the things to cause that. PG 275. It was like that the other day, says the second one, without hearing Theramark made to him.
There was a little wheat left, sweepings, a mere nothing. There was some idea of turning the refuse into money. Well, look here, they took it to him, and he confiscated it. All economy, you see. Was that so, and was I trite? Yes or no? But whom can you complain to? To whom? Why, the, specter, inspector, who's coming? What, specter? It's true, pals, a, specter is coming soon, said a youthful convict, who had got some sort of knowledge, had read the, Duchess de la Valliere, or some book of that sort, and who had been quartermaster in a regiment, a bit of a wag, whom, as a man of information, the convicts held in a sort of respect. Without paying the least attention to the exciting debate, he goes straight to the cook, and asks him for some liver. Our cooks often deal in vittles of that kind. The used to buy a whole liver, cut it in pieces, and sell it to the other convicts. Two kopecks worth, or four? Asks cook. A four kopeck cut. I'll eat, the others shall look on and long, says this convict. Yes, pals, a general, a real general, is coming from Petersburg Tospect all Siberia. It's so, heard it at the governor's place. This news produces an extraordinary effect. For a quarter of an hour they ask each other who this general can be. What's his title? Whether his grade ishire than that of the generals of our town. The convicts delight in discussing ranks and degrees, in finding out who's at the head of things, who can make the other officials crook their backs, and to whom he crooks his own. So they get upan argument and quarrel about their generals, and rude words fly about, all in honor of these high officers, fights, too, sometimes. What interest can they possibly have in it? When 1, PG 276. Here's convicts speaking of generals and high officials one gets a measure of their intelligence as they were while still in the world before the prison days. It cannot be concealed that among our people, even in much higher circles, talk about generals and high officials is looked upon as the most serious and refined conversation. Well, you see, they have sent our major to the right about, don't ye? Observes Kavasif, a little, rubicund, choleric, small-brained fellow, the same who had announced the supersession of the major. We'll just grease their palm for them. This, in staccato tones from the morose old fellow in the corner who had finished his sour cabbage soup. I should think he would grease their palms, by Jove, says another. He has stolen money enough, the brigand. And, only think, he was only a regimental major before he came here. He's feathered his nest. Why, a little while ago he was engaged to the head priest's daughter. But he didn't get married. They turned him off, and that shows he's poor. A pretty sort of fellow to get engaged. He's got nothing but the coat on his back. Last year, Easter time, he lost all he had at cards. Fedka told me so. Well, well, pals, I've been married myself, but it's a bad thing for a poor devil. Taking a wife is soon done, but the fun of it is more like an inch than a meal, observes Skoratov, who had just joined in the general talk. Do you fancy we're going to amuse ourselves by discussing you? Says the ex-quartermaster in a superior manner. Kvasif, I tell you you're a big idiot. If you fancy that the major can grease the palm of an inspector general you've got things finely muddled. They fancy they send a man from Petersburg just to inspect your major? You're a precious dolt, my lad. Take it from me that it is so. PG 277. And you fancy because he's a general he doesn't take what's offered? Said someone in the crowd in a skeptical tone. I should think he did indeed, and plenty of it whenever he can. A dead sure thing that gets bigger, and more, and worse, the higher the rank. A general always has his palm greased, says Kvasif, sententiously. Did you ever give them money, as you're so sure of it? Asks Bakluchin, suddenly striking in, in a tone of contempt. Come, now, did you ever see a general in all your life? Yes. Liar. Liar, yourself. Well, boys, as he has seen a general, let him say which. Come, quick about it. 
I know em all, every man Jack. I've seen General Zibert, says Kavasif in tones far from shore. Zibert. There's no general of that name. That's the general, perhaps, who was looking at your back when they gave you the cat. This Zibert was, perhaps, a lieutenant colonel, but you were in such a fright just then, you took him for a general. No, just hear me, cries Skoratov, for I've got a wife. There was really a general of that name, a German, but a Russian subject. He confessed to the Pope, every year, all about his peccadilloes with gay women, and drank water like a duck, at least forty glasses of Moskva water one after the other. That was the way he got cured of some disease. I had it from his valet. I say. And the carp didn't swim in his belly? This from the convict with the balalaika. Be quiet, fellows, can't you? One's talking seriously, and there they are beginning their nonsense again. PG 278. Who's the specter that's coming? Thisvas put by a convict who always seemed full of business, Martinov, an old man who had been in the hussars. Set of lying fellows, said one of the doubters. Lord knows where they get it all from, it's all empty talk. It's nothing of the sort, observes Kulikov, majestically silent hitherto, in dogmatic tones. The man coming is big and fat, about fifty years, with regular features, and proud, contemptuous manners, on which he prides himself. Kulikov is a Segan, a sort of veterinary surgeon, makes money by treating horses in town, and sells wine in our prison. He's no fool, plenty of brain, memory well stocked, lets his words fall as carefully as if every one of them was worth a ruble. It's true, he went on very calmly, I heard of it only last week, it's a general with bigger epaulets than most, and he's going to inspect all Siberia. They grease his palm well for him, that's sure enough, but not our major with his eight eyes in his head. He won't dare to creep in about him, for you see, pals, there are generals and generals, as there are fagos and fagos. It's just this, and you may take it from me, our major will remain where highs. We're fellows with no tongue, we've no right to speak, and as to our chiefs here, they're not going to say a word against him. The specter will come into our jail, give a look round, and go off at once, he'll say it was all right. Yes, but the major's in a fright, he's been drunk since morning. And this evening he had two van loads of things taken away, Fedka says so. You may scrub a nigger, he'll never be white. Is it the first time you've seen I am drunk, hey? No? It will be a devil of a shame if the general does nothing to him, said the convicts, who began to get highly excited. PG 279. The news of the arrival of the inspector went through the prison. The prisoners went everywhere about the courtyard retailing the important fact. Some held their tongues and kept cool, trying to look important, some were really indifferent to it. Some of the convicts sat down on the steps of the doors to play the balalaika, while some went on with their gossip. Some groups were singing in a drawling voice, but the whole courtyard was upset and excited generally. About nine o'clock they counted us, and quartered us in our barracks, which were closed for the night. A short summer night it was, so we were roused up at five o'clock in the morning, yet nobody had managed to sleep before eleven, for up to that hour there was conversation and all sort of movement was going on. Sometimes, too, games of cards were made up, as in winter. The heat was intolerable, stifling. True, the open window let in some of the cool night air, but the convicts kept tossing themselves on their wooden beds as if delirious. Fleas countless. There were enough of them in winter, but when spring came they multiplied in proportions so formidable that I couldn't believe it before I had to endure them. And as the summer went on the worse it was with them. I found out that one could get used to fleas, but for all that, the torment of them is so great that it throws you into a fever. Even when you get slumber you quit a feel it is not sleep, you are half delirious, and know it. At last, towards morning, 
when the enemy is tired and you are deliciously asleep in the freshness of the early hours, suddenly sounds the pitiless morning drum call. How you curse as you hear them, those sharp, quick strokes, you cower in your semi-police, and then, you can't help it, comes the thought that it will be Isa tomorrow, the day after, for many, many years, till you are set at liberty. When will it come, this freedom, freedom? Where is it in this world? Where is it hiding? You have to get up, they are walking about you in all directions. The usual noisy row begins. The PG-280 convicts dress, and hurry to their work. It's true you have an hour you can spend in sleep at noon. What we had been told about the inspector was really true. The reports were more confirmed every day, and at last it became certain that a general, high in office, was coming from Petersburg to inspect all Siberia, that he was already at Tobolsh. Every day we learned something fresh about it. These rumors came from the town. They told us that there was alarm in all quarters, and that everybody was making preparations to show himself in as favorable a light as might be. The authorities were organizing receptions, balls, fates of every kind. Gangs of convicts were sent to level the ways in the fortress, smooth away hummocks in the ground, paint the pawlings and other woodwork, to plaster, dupe, and generally repair everything that was conspicuous. Our prisoners perfectly well understood the object of this labor, and their discussions became all the more animated and excited. Their imaginations passed all bounds. They even set about formulating some demands to be set before the general on his arrival, but that did not prevent their going on with their quarrels and violent speeches. Our major was on hot coals. He came continually to visit the jail, shouted, and threw himself angrily on the fellows more than usual, sent them to the guardroom in punishment for a mere nothing, and watched very severely over the cleanliness and good order of the barracks. Just then, there occurred a little event which did not at all painfully affect this officer as one might have expected, but, on the contrary, caused him a lively satisfaction. One of the convicts struck another with an awl right in the chest, in a place quite near the heart. The delinquent's name was Lamoff. The name the victim was known by in the jailwash Gavrilka. He was one of those seasoned tramps I've spoken about earlier. Whether he had any other name, I don't know. I never heard any attributed to him, except that one, Gavrilka. PG 281. Lamoff had been a peasant comfortably off in the government of T, and district of K. There were five of them living together, two brothers Lamoff, and three sons. They were quite rich peasants, the talk throughout the district was Thathi had more than 300,000 rubles in paper money. They worked at careeing and tanning, but their chief business was usury, harboring tramps, and receiving stolen goods, all sorts of petty irregular doings. Half the peasants of their district owed them money, and so were in their clutches. They passed for being intelligent and full of cunning, and gave themselves very great airs. A great personage of their province had stopped on his way once at the father Lamoff's house, and this official had taken a fancy to him, because of his hardy and unscrupulous talk. Then they took it in their heads they might do exactly as Thee pleased, and mixed themselves up more and more with illegal doings. Everybody had a grievance against them, and would like to have seen them a hundred feet under the ground, but they got bolder and bolder every day. They were not afraid of the local police or the district tribunals. At last fortune betrayed them. Their ruin came, not out of their secret crimes, but from an accusation which was all calumny and falsehood. Ten versts from their hamlet they had a farm where six Kyrgyz laborers, long since brought down by them to be no better than slaves, used to pass the autumn. One fine day these Kyrgyz were found murdered. An inquiry was set on foot that lasted long, thanks to which no end of atrocious things were brought to light. The Lamoffs were accused of having assassinated their workmen. They had themselves told their story to the convicts, all the jail knew it perfectly. They were suspected of owing a great deal of money to the Kyrgyz, and, 
as they were full of greed and avarice in spite of their large fortunes, it was believed they had paid the debt by taking the lives of the poor fellows. While the inquiry and trial went in, their property melted away utterly. The PG-282. Father died, the sons were transported. One of these, with the uncle, was condemned to fifteen years of hard labor. Now, they were perfectly innocent of the crime imputed to them. One fine day Gavrilka, a thorough-paced rascal, known as a tramp, but a very gay and lively turn, avowed himself the author of the crime. As a matter of fact I don't know whether he actually made this avowal himself, but what is sure is that the convicts held him to be the murderer of the Kyrgyz. This Gavrilka, while still tramping about, had been mixed up in some way with the Lamoffs, his confinement in one jail was for quite a short sentence, for desertion from the army and tramping. He had cut the throats of the Kyrgyz, three other marauding fellows had been in it with him, in the hope of setting themselves up a bit with the plunder of the farm. The Lamoffs were no favorites with us, I really don't know why. One of them, the nephew, was a sturdy fellow, intelligent and sociable, but his uncle, the one that struck Gavrilka with the all, was a choleric, stupid rustic, always quarreling with the convicts, who knocked him about like plaster. All the jay liked Gavrilka for his gaiety and good humor. The Lamoffs got to know, like the rest, that he was the man who committed the crime they were condemned for, but he never got into any quarrel with him. Gavrilka paid no attention whatever toth him. The row with Uncle Lamoff began about some disgusting girl they had quarreled over. Gavrilka had boasted of the favor she had shown him. The peasant, mad with jealousy, ended by driving an awl into his chest. Although the Lamoffs had been ruined by their trial and sentence, they passed in the jail for being very rich. They had money, a samovar, and drank tea. Our major knew all about it, and hated the two Lamoffs, sparing them no vexation. The victims of his hate explained it by a desire to have them grease his palm, PG 283. Well, but they could not, or would not, bring themselves to do it. If Uncle Lamoff had struck his all one hair's breadth further in Gavrilka's breast he would certainly have killed him, as it was, the wound did not much signify. The affair was reported to the major. I think I see him now as he came up out of breath, but with visible satisfaction. He addressed Gavrilka in anifable, fatherly way. Tell me, lad, can you walk to the hospital or must they carry you there? No, I think it will be better to have a horse. Let them put a horse to this moment, he cried out to the sub-officer with a gasp. But I don't feel it at all, your worship, he's only given me a bit of a prick, your worship. You don't know, my dear fellow, you don't know, you'll see. A nasty place he struck you in. All depends upon the place. He has given it you just below the heart, the scoundrel. Wait, wait, he howled to Lamoff. I've got you tight. Take him to the guardhouse. He kept his promise. Lamoff was tried, and, though the wound was slight, there was plainly malice aforethought. His sentence of hard labor was extended for several years, and they gave him a thousand strokes with the rod. The major was delighted. The inspector arrived at last. The day after he reached the town, he came to the convict establishment to Makihi's inspection. It was a regular fete day. For some days everything had been brilliantly clean, washed with great precision. The convicts were all just haven, their linen quite white and without a stain. According to the regulations, they wore in summer waistcoats and pantaloons of canvas. Every owner had a round black piece sewn in at the back, eight centimeters in diameter. For a whole hour the prisoners had been drilled as to what they should answer, every words to be used, particularly if the high functionary should take any notice of them. PG 284, there had been even regular rehearsals. The major seemed to have lost his head. An hour before the coming in of the inspector, all the convicts were at their posts, as stiff as statues, with their little fingers on the seams of their pantaloons. At last, 
Just about one o'clock the inspector made his entry. He was a general, with a most self-sufficing bearing, so much so, that the mere sight of it must have sent a tremor into the hearts of all the officials of West Siberia. He came in with a stern and majestic air, followed by a crowd of generals and colonels doing service in our town. There was a civilian, too, of high stature and regular features, in frock coat and shoes. This personage bore himself very independently and airily, and the general addressed him every moment with exquisite politeness. This civilian also had come from Petersburg. All the convicts were terribly curious as to who he could be, such an important general showing him such deference. We learned who he was and what his office later, Buddha was a good deal talked about before we knew. Our major, all spick and span, with orange-colored collar, made no too favorable impression upon the general. The bloodshot eyes and fiery rubicund complexion plainly told their own story. Out of respect for his superior he had taken off his spectacles, and stood some way off, as straight as a dart, in feverish expectation that something would be asked of him, that he might run and carry out his excellency's wishes, but no particular need of his services seemed to be felt. The general went all through the barracks without saying a word, threw a glance into the kitchen, where he tasted the sour cabbage soup. They pointed me out to him, telling him that I was an ex-nobleman, who had done this, that, and the other. Ah, answered the general. And how does he conduct himself? Satisfactorily for the time being, your excellency, satisfactorily. The general nodded, and left the jail in a couple of minutes more. The convicts were dazzled and disappointed, and did not know what to be at. As to laying complaints against the major, that was quite over, could not be thought of. Hahad, no doubt, been quite well assured as to this beforehand. About Hacker Noon book series, we bring you the most important technical, scientific, and insightful public domain books. This book is part of the public domain. Fyodor Dostoevsky, 2011. The House of the Dead, or, Prison Life in Siberia. Urbana, Illinois. Project Gutenberg. Retrieved October HTTPS colon slash slash www. Gutenberg. Org, Cache, EPUB. 37,536, PG 37,536 images. HTML This ebook is for the use of anyone anywhere at no cost and with almost no restrictions whatsoever. You may copy it, give it away or reuse it under the terms of the Project Gutenberg license included with this ebook or online at www.gutenberg.org. Located at https colon slash slash www.gutenberg.org. Policy. License. HTML. Thank you for listening to this Hackernoon story, read by Artificial Intelligence. Visit hackernoon.com to read, write, learn and publish. Dot.